From west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. Connecting with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hello and welcome to episode 34 of the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. I am your host and Diz historian, Michael Bowling, and I am joined by my good friend, co-host and producer, Craig Williams. Craig, how are you today? I'm doing great. How are you, Michael? I'm doing well. So, uh, tonight we're continuing our Disney Legends series, um, where we share stories about individuals who have made an extraordinary and integral contribution to the Walt Disney Company. So today on Connecting with Walt, Craig and I are honored to speak with Imagineer and Disney legend Bob Gurr. Bob Gurr was born on October 25th, 1931, and grew up near Grand Central Air Terminal. That was Southern California's premier airport in the 1930s and 40s. In an interesting foreshadowing of the future, that area is now part of Imagineering's Glendale campus. Uh, Bob attended the Arts Center College of Design in Los Angeles on a General Motors scholarship, where he studied industrial design and graduated in 1952. He was hired by Ford Motor Company, but soon started his own business, R.H. Gurr Industrial Design. Bob started working at Wed Enterprises in 1954 and is best known by Disneyland and Walt Disney World guests for his innovative work creating the Utopia cars, the monorail, people mover, Main Street USA vehicles, Matterhorn bobsleds, flying saucers, omnimovers, Mr. Toad cars, and a whole lot more. Bob's mechanical and creative achievements led to his receiving the themed Entertainment Association's Lifetime Achievement Award in 1999. In 2004, Bob was officially recognized as a Disney legend. However, these are only a few of Bob's many achievements that we'll be talking about today. So, Bob, welcome to the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure anytime. If you've got some really good questions, we can get a good thread going here and we'll just take off and away we go. Excellent. Now, now, Bob, you've been quoted as saying, if it moves on wheels at the Disney parks, I probably designed it. So I assume this includes the, the unicycles from the Mickey Mouse Club Circus? Not really the unicycles, <laughs> because you've got to be very careful. There's a lot of things that are wheels, but I think uh, it might have been Marty Sklar a couple of decades ago coined that phrase, and I sort of picked it up when somebody said, well, what? In, in 10 seconds, what did you do? And it's like, all right, uh, that's what people say. If it moves on wheels, I probably did it, except for the unicycle and except for horse wagons and a few other uh, contraptions. (laughs) Now, what was life like for a boy growing up in Glendale in Southern California of the 30s and 40s? Well, interestingly, I found out later that uh, I first was about 18 years old living in the Los Feliz district of uh, Los Angeles, just two streets down from where Walt Disney was living on Walking Way. 
Oh, it was a bad time. You know, the depression was on and my father lost his job. So he had to move in with his mother-in-law. But the good part is I got to live at grandma's house instead of father's <laughs> house. So I got a very, very good launch. But by the time I was three, we moved over to uh, Glendale, which was very, very close to the um, Grand Central Air Terminal, which, of course, now is the center part of the uh, Glendale Creative Campus for Walt Disney Imagineering. So uh, to answer your question, what was it like? you got to remember, when you're a little itty-bitty kid, you know, maybe like two years old, everything you see is totally fascinating and totally engaging, which means you get into all kinds of trouble trying to find out what stuff is. Uh, a child is very difficult to restrain. The more interesting things you see, the more you run off. So it was my parents' job to try to hang on to me by the collar, because otherwise I'll just disappear into fascinating things. Now, by the time we get over to Glendale... By that time, I'm three to four years old. We stayed there until 1939. But streets were full of cars, and cars were the most fascinating thing. And in the air, right over the top of our house, was airplanes of every kind. Because we lived on the downwind leg approach to the uh, airport in Glendale. So by the time I get into kindergarten, I've already got this fabulous world that I'm intensely interested in. The nice thing about going to kindergarten is you start to learn a bunch of stuff. You get into second grade, and by golly, oh, I can eventually read. Oh, now I can really learn stuff. By the time I get to the third grade, Mrs. Holman gives me uh, all kinds of colored pencils and a lot of paper because she sees I'd rather draw cars and airplanes than do the stuff that she wanted me to do. So luckily... I had a couple of teachers very early on that saw that, you know, you just ought to let little Robert go because there'll be a lot less fighting. Uh, but if he does his work, you know, he'll, he'll get a good, good grade and it'll work. So by the time I was uh, seven, that was my world. Mm-hmm. And, I, and, and it's interesting. There's something that when I, when I read about your life and, and I've heard you speak several times, is that it, you were born with this curiosity that I, I think it was innate, and it and that it seemed like that was central to your career and your success. What was this insatiable curiosity? Well, the insatiable curiosity part, uh, you got to realize. Let's say. Uh, I'm almost 86 now, and I have to look backwards to try to understand what was going on when I was young. Because as you do things, you're not aware of the how and the why that you do things. You probably think, well, doesn't everybody do do things the way I do it? Well, I find out the answer is no, because I wondered, why is everybody else having a hard time doing what they do and everything I do is so easy? It wasn't until later somebody would start to whisper the G word. Oh, that's a genius guy there. Well, which is kind of implied. You're not, if you're a genius, you're never supposed to talk about it. But there, there are innate characteristics, which, of course, in the documentary of um, you know Bob Gurr turning dreams into reality, a lot of the um, people interviewed all said about the same thing. There's a curiosity that, uh, that I've got. Uh, I noticed Walt Disney had that. Uh, I didn't realize that until, you know, working with him for a few years, that he would ask questions in all directions of anybody wherever I saw him or whenever we do any traveling or anything. And that, over time, became very, very central to uh, uh, Walt's success. And, it, of course, it turned out was 
probably the, the key to my success. I'll give, you a, I'll give you an example. Let's say that if you were to go to an engineering school, which I never did, you would uh, learn the curriculum and you would follow, a, say, a four-year course. And by the time you'd graduate, you could do that with good grades, which meant you were only good at memorizing. That didn't prove you ever knew anything or ever learned anything. It's possible to go all the way through school and without your own self-learning and without your own curiosity, you know, you really don't know much. You don't have much of any life experience. Well, let's say, let's look at the type of person who is constantly curious. Um, it's kind of strange. You're interested in everything, even though you, it, it's not your line of work or your line of interest. It's just that every time there's something interesting, oh, I want to know how it works. I want to take it apart and look at it. I want to know how these people did this. I want to know how those people got that thing done. But you don't apply it right away to what you're doing. But guess what? You wind up in a place like Walt Disney's Wet Enterprises, and Walt comes along, and they're starting to talk about something. And rather than give a big order like Walt never gave anybody an order, he'd walk up to walk up to you and say, "Say, Bobby, we're we're thinking of," and then he'd start to articulate what this thing might be. What goes through your mind immediately is you see so many ways to do parts of it, even though uh, he hasn't given you one picture or hardly any words. Now, the other people in the room that are, are completely trained but have never had good curiosity, they will sit there and wait and say, gee, I hope Walt tells us what to do. Do you see what my point is? Mm -hmm. <laughs> the people that are curious and the, those people, when somebody asks them to do something, you always say yes, even though if you've never done it, you're not qualified Say yes. That'll buy you the time to go poke around and see what you, uh, what more information you need to go do something. But you already know a little bit about an awful lot by this uh, years and years and years of curiosity. I'll show you a final example. Somebody will say, well, Bob, why are you doing all this? You haven't worked in 20 years. Well, I'll say it this way. Friday nights, I'll sit there with my Gertini and my rocking chair and the thought that comes across my mind every Friday is, do you know how much I know on Friday that I did not know Monday? Now think about that. My Every waking hour, except for yard work and housework and other things you got to do, uh, you're always poking your nose into something. You know, there's the internet, there's books, there's newspapers or whatever, you know, or out riding my bicycle someplace. There's always things to see and inquire about. So each week I have collected probably another 500 items of completely useless information I may never, never use. But it's a habit. It's natural. It's instinct. It's in my DNA. And I can't stop it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I heard you say this uh, years ago when I first started um you know, being the Disney historian for the Diz, and I heard you talk about you say yes, and then you figure out how to do it. You know that you never said no to Walt. You would say yes if we do this, or yes, you know, something like that. And I, that was something I incorporated in my professional life. I was a teacher, and now I'm a, a supervisor, uh, and I, um, and you know, it really opens doors for you when you do that. Well, yes, because the person that you're, has come to you and is starting a conversation, 
they are much more uh, elated to have you immediately respond uh, along the lines of, gee, that sounds interesting. Uh, when can we get started? Versus mm -hmm. the, uh, let's say, the conventional person, when somebody will suggest we're going to do something, they'll say, um, well, when are you going to give us the uh, specifications and the requirements and all the formulas and everything, uh, I could get started if you would give me that. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm sorry, fella. <laughs> You're going to have a very conventional life, uh, have a good time uh, somewhere down the totem pole helping other people doing their projects, but you probably won't be on the top of the pile uh, describing the overall configuration of like a vehicle or a large attraction. Uh, it's much more fun to be at the top of the pile in a specific part of a big, big attraction, and you're in charge of how it's going to be, and you have no fear to lay that out and know that you're going to have other people that uh, are, are, are more frightened to uh, suggest creative stuff, but you know that they, they'll love to do their part the minute you uh, articulate it a little bit for them. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I agree. And now, no. When, when you mentioned when you were a boy, you were when you were young, you were just a couple of blocks uh, away from where Walt Disney lived in Roy. Uh, now, today, children are exposed to Disney from birth. Um, but back when you were a child, Walt and Roy were in the very early years of their studio. Did you have any exposure to Disney as a boy? The only exposure would have been that uh, after 1939, we moved to uh, North Hollywood, California, and my father had a... <clears throat> at his shop in Glendale, California, and Riverside Drive was the main street. We went back and forth, and there was a great big building going up in a vacant lot. And by the time it was finished, uh, I would be curious about it because it was big, you know, great big new-looking place. And I learned that that's where Donald Duck lives. Uh, because I, uh, I, I had occasionally somebody give me a comic book, and I, I liked Donald Duck. I never did like the mouse. I, mouse was some, he just he wasn't my my style, but I liked the duck. So my father would jokingly say, uh, "We go by that nice new building." He says, oh, "That's Donald Duck lives in there." Um, so naturally, I didn't pay much attention to Walt Disney until the Fantasia film. Oh. That really got my interest. That was the most mysterious thing I'd ever seen, but it had nothing to do with a duck. And it was seven years before they ran it again, so I could really understand uh, what it was. Uh, and, of course, I learned all the other Disney characters, but never gave it a thought. Um, not a bit until I got the call to go to the Disney studio in October of 1954. And, and now, before that, you, you graduated from the Arts Center College of Design. You moved to Detroit and worked for Ford Motor Company. And what did you do for Ford? Well, I was trained as uh, what is referred to in those days as a car stylist because uh, cars were styled from the outside, just the shape of the car, and uh, the stylist would force the engineering department to bend the metal and make the car look like their models and drawings. Today, uh, the styling part and the engineering part are all one. They're all together. So the cars are much better now. So you don't use the word styling. So don't ever let anybody know that I was ever a car stylist. But going to Detroit when you're born in California, within two weeks, I could see that uh, this was going to be a dead-end career. Four years at Art Center, 
for a career that I wanted to design cars. I get there and I could see, uh, whoops, I made a big mistake. And I was working in Ford's advanced uh, styling department under Gil Spear, which was a super place. But anyway, they transferred me to the Lincoln studio and I was there for five months. And then George Walker Industrial Design had a great big uh, company downtown Detroit talk me into quitting Ford and go to work for him. Well, guess what? As soon as I got down there, he was a consultant of the Ford Motor Company, and he was one of the team of uh, four or five companies proposing the new 1955 Lincoln Continental Mark II project. So I was raided right out from underneath the noses of Ford to go work for a competitor to Ford to help design this uh, Continental Mark II. But a year and a day... I was sitting there in a General Motors building, and I was looking at the ugly taillight on the 53 Buick, and the lunch <laughs> in the Fisher cafeteria was no good. Some of the folks were in a bad mood, and I just looked at my buddies, and I said, that's it. I'm going back to California. Goodbye. Yeah. Went up to my office, said, uh, thank you, George, but I'm leaving, and I was way down in Indiana by midnight. Wow. <laughs> so, when, you, when you make a decision, you, you make it. You act on it. <laughs> you know, it's a funny. Those kind of decisions, uh, I think all through my life, you'd come to a point where, yep, you're thinking about it. Well, by golly, do it. And guess what? There was always a payoff that was better on every one of these risky things. And that, of course, has been uh, my trail ever since, 45 years, 250 different projects, some of them as crazy as, say, a Steve Wynn in Las Vegas saying, I want to sink a ship on Las Vegas Boulevard. Hey, that sounds interesting. Anybody else would say, oh, Steve, you're crazy. Mm-hmm. They, they know who to go to. Now, you did write a couple of books, uh, How to Draw Cars of Tomorrow. Uh, and that was one of the first books ever written about car design. And. Yes, yeah, uh, oddly enough, over time, there was only two uh, people ever wrote a book about car design. You know, you know let students uh, see what you need to do and how to actually draw the car. There was a guy by the name of Bill Jenks. Uh, he made a book at about the same time, a little bit smaller book. And then I did my book. And then I thought over the years there'd be uh, more books on design. Uh, well, that really never happened. So uh, Bill Jenks's little book and my book are... Uh, they're, they're kind of a singular uh, rarity. But, you know, at Disney events, somebody will suddenly show up with one of the early books. I think I did four books. And they uh, they buy them somewhere, and then they want them autographed finally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then you wrote one that's beautiful, Automobile Design, the Complete Styling Book. I mean, th- th- what you drew could be framed. You know, a car lover would, would love to frame those and hang them on their wall. Yeah, I didn't do all the drawings. I, I did mm-hmm. most of them. Uh, you'll see that there's different, um, uh, you know, different styles. And of course, if you go on the internet, uh, you'll you'll find pictures from uh, those books everywhere. And of course, everybody mm-hmm. copies them and and puts them out there. But uh, they don't copy the name of the artist that was at it signed the uh, the drawing. But I had a lot of guys saying, "Hey, girl, that's going to be a cool book. Could, you want one of my pictures here? Well, let me give you one of my pictures. You can use it." You know, it was just done in, in enthusiasm in those days. Of course, I did that when I was um, um, first book I wrote was I was nineteen years old. Yeah, yeah, you just graduated. Yeah, that, that's amazing. I know the book. The book actually came out. Um, 
I no, the book was done before I graduated. Uh-huh. But I didn't get uh, copies of the books mailed to me in Detroit until I actually got to Detroit. And I was there about maybe three weeks. I started selling the books to all the other uh, stylists. And I could understand why I upset so many people because visualize this. Let's say you're in your 40s and you've been at Ford forever and you're a car style, really professional. Here's this California kid. He shows up, green but painted ears. <laughs> he said he wants to sell you his book on how you're supposed to design the cars. Uh, yeah, you, uh, you want to be a brat and upset people right away? Yeah, that's the way to do it. Oh, they didn't think you had gumption? <laughs> Well, I found out. Found out I did. Yes. Uh-huh. Now, when you return home to California, you spent some of your free time with a car club called the Roadburners. You became friends with another club member, Dave Iwerks, and you'd frequently have Sunday dinners at his parents' home, and that led to a meeting of his father that would change the course of your life and career. Yes, uh, Dave Iwerks, and of course his older brother uh, Don Iwerks. Uh, I was, you know, almost like part of their family for a number of years because they they lived on my paper out when I had my paper out there, and uh, you know, throughout uh, World War II and in a few years after, uh, kids will want to be in a car club. We all drove cars painted the same color blue, called Belden Blue. And Dave had a 36 Ford convertible. I had a 36 Ford five window. And Bell painted the same color. But I'd go to these Sunday dinners after church at the iWorks home. And uh, of iWorks uh, would sometimes show a little black and white movie of current events on the Disney lot. And, of course, one of the movies showed a little um, a rather ugly-looking car, like an amusement ride car. And Kirk Douglas and his little boy were driving around in a car. But there was another car there that had no body on it, just uh, just sitting there. And uh, maybe within a week or two, I get this call from um, uh, uh, the job placement officer down at the Art Center School, which I where I previously uh, graduated. Said, "Bob, do you ever do outside work?" And I said, "Yes," even though I didn't. <laughs> well. The next morning, a phone call says, go to the Disney studio and meet Mr. Irvine uh, right away. So on the way out there, I remembered I'd seen a picture in the Los Angeles Times of a painting of a big, beautiful amusement park. I remember it had a rope and like a hot air balloon over the top of the thing. And I just thought, oh, that'd be the neatest place. I hope somebody builds that thing. And on the way out, I thought, you know... I wonder if that picture has anything to do with what Ub showed me, uh, a little car and then this other amusement car. I wonder if they're related, and I wonder why they call me, because, you know, I am—I do design bodies for cars. Maybe that's what they want. That was a guess. Go in the door, that's exactly what they wanted. Yeah, you, um, yeah, you, these Sunday dinners led you to tackling the design of the first Utopia cars. So, uh, and, and the curious thing was, Ub Iwerks was such a quiet guy. He always showed me his uh, gun collection in his uh, shop. He had a little uh, a machine shop in, the, in, the, in, the, in their garage and was always showing me stuff. He always had interesting sport, sporty-type cars and would always give me a ride in them. I had no idea what he did at Disney. He said... Uh, something like, well, I do special effects. I didn't know what that meant. 
Then I get to the studio. Oh, you never told me you were this important. <laughs> Walt literally started the whole thing. Well, uh-huh. yeah, I did. <laughs> yep. If it wasn't for Ub, Mickey would yep. not look the way he did today. Does today? <laughs> That's right. So, anyway, and now, so how did you how did you tackle the Utopia cards? I mean, nothing existed, you know, like it. So, how did you go about that? Well, remember, going back to what I was talking about, the curiosity, mm-hmm. I'd been interested in cars literally from, you know, three or four years old. I was always learning about them. Uh, I was always fussing around with cars. Uh, I would always go to whichever auto races I could uh, get a ride, go see uh, auto races. And, of course, by the, by 1940s. Yeah, 46, I've got a car. You know, I'm driving a car at 15 with no driver's license and working on it, taking it apart. In those days, high school had a wood shop, a metal shop, and it had an auto shop. You could go to school and get an A and get all your credits while working on your car in the auto shop as a project. Mm-hmm. Well, guess what? Kids nowadays have a hard time learning about cars, but we just learned about them automatically because, number one, we're interested Number two, they taught it in high school. Yes. So, uh, to me, they're looking at the little chassis of this little car on the back lot of the Disney Studio. It's pretty rudimentary. It's pretty simple. And let's say to me, I would say it's self-explanatory. Just look at it. That might puzzle somebody else, but I could see, oh, yeah, we could put a body on it. I could design a body to do that so easy. Mm-hmm. And so, how long was it before you were brought on full time by uh, by um, the studio shop manager Roger Brogy? Well, that was just uh, two weeks because I went over in a midweek uh, for the first uh, call, and then agreed to make some drawings at night and come back on Saturday morning. And I think it was the second Saturday morning that I was there that um, that Walt said, uh, "Well, I, I I got a lot more work for you." You know, which was going to be uh, implied that was going to be beyond just that one Autopia body. Mm-hmm. So I made some kind of a, a crack about, uh, well, uh, gee, I hope your little amusement park works. This sounds interesting, <laughs> 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 which was a heck of an understatement at the time. But uh, I was immediately signed up just like that. Yeah, yeah. So what was your first meeting like with Walt Disney? Do you know, I never had a meeting and I was never introduced formally. Uh, there's a little chassis, you know, on the, like the uh, second Saturday morning. Uh, you know, when guys stand around with cars, you know, the first thing you do is you, you put your foot on top of the tire, and then you put your elbow on your knee, and you put your head in your, in your hand, and you cogitate. And we had, you know, there was uh, two of us plus myself cogitating on the tires, looking at the little car about the possibilities. And another guy walks up, much older guy. Uh, I remember he had a little uh, Roy Rogers belt with a little painted silver bullets, and he had a goofy little tie that it was awfully short, had a little funny emblem on it, and he was kind of unshaven looking. And I kind of took him as uh, probably a father of one of the night guards or something, you know, because it's Saturday morning. And uh, when he walked away, um, the guy said, uh, See ya, Walt. And I thought, Oh my God, maybe that was Walt Disney. <laughs> and then, of course, uh, you know, on the following Saturday, I'm back in there getting ready to, you know, really work there. Walt uh, immediately asked me about my books. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And I, I was puzzled. I said, I don't, I don't even know you, and, and you know about my books, and you're asking me questions. Well, I, it dawned on me in later years. Walt totally inquired and researched about everybody that he was collecting in those days. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was curious about the people that were about ready to be part of his team. Found that out very early. Mm-hmm. So did so is that, did you and Walt have a, a connection because you both had that curiosity? Well, that, yeah, the realization of that connection came many, many years years later because I noticed so many people working for him were the most unusual people. You know, all you know, all the Herb Ryman's and you know everybody, the Blaine Gibsons, everybody. Uh, I just never saw people like that in like the outside world. They were doing fabulous work, but the thing was when you were there, when Walt was suggesting we get started on something, you know, we're like at a ground zero, you know, like a haunted mansion or a, or a Monsanto ride. The fact that these people within days were pumping out artwork, pumping out drawings, pumping out uh, estimates and construction drawings, it was just like, wow, these people just self-start. Mm-hmm. Well, that's what Walt wanted. He wanted self-starters. Like you said, he would say, gee, wouldn't it be great if we could do this? And then he expected you to do it. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah, there was, uh, I would have to say, virtually no order giving, really. Uh, virtually no uh, formal day where there's a meeting that launches, they were officially going to do something. The things he would eventually do uh, were always being sort of talked about from time to time over a long period of time. Uh, there wasn't any, uh, you know, instantaneous eureka moment followed by a, a big budget order. It was just sort of ideas are always sort of cooking on the back burners. Walt probably had a thousand back burners, and you never knew which one was pot, pot was going to come to the front of the stove at any time. Uh, <laughs> so you're just used, used to it working like that. Mm-hmm. Now, so you were hired to do the Utopia Cars. How long was it until opening day of Disneyland? How much time did you have? Well, as I told you, my first visit there was about the middle week of October of 1954. Okay. And, of course, by, uh, I would say, January, we pretty much had the, uh, the styling design of the Utopia Car body uh, well underway, the, you know, the design of it. We, uh, Roger Brogy was picking out uh, vendors for different parts. We were also figuring out which parts are we going to buy and which parts would we have to design. And that's when I found out that the guy that built the original chassis didn't get the job for the production job, so he refused to help us. So he had a lot of parts he made that he wouldn't share what they were. And so I had to figure them out and make, uh, you know, sort of back engineer and make the drawings. Mm-hmm. And I think we had the little body finished by uh, about the 1st of February for the, uh, you know, the clay model. There's, you've seen the photographs of Walt sitting on the little clay model. Mm-hmm. And of course, it's only a matter of weeks that we have uh, the body tooling underway. And at the same time, we've got parts being built or parts being bought for the, uh, all the mechanical part of that car. All that came together right around... About the second week of April, we had a completed car, mm-hmm. uh, which would be like the first prototype to, uh, leading up to we're going to build like 39 more of those little cars. So we had uh, 
most of the cars built by uh, about June 12th of 1955, and where there's pictures of a Autopia car, and I'm uh, on the left side of it, and there's a younger-looking fellow with a cigarette on the right side of the car. That was my college professor, uh, Strother McMahon, at Art Center. That was our official press day. So if you measure from middle of October to about the uh, second week of June, to do something that never been done like that, uh, that's not a lot, of, not a long time, really. Not at all. But it was indicative of how fast uh, everybody at Disney did their did their work. Now, yeah, what, did, sorry, did you know you were going to be doing so much of the engineering and the mechanics with it, or were you solely brought in for the style design, and then it just kind of went from there? Well. The truth is that you always say yes and you never say no. Uh, Walt assumed that since I did bodies, I also did the chassis, all the mechanical engineering. I just kept my mouth shut and trying to learn everything I could. You know, Roger Brogue would show me where to get some parts and he'd help me with some of the technical things I need to go learn. But the rest of it, I just uh, dug it out on my own. Already, you know, you're a car kid. You already know how stuff works. You know, I'd taken the engine out of my Model A Ford and completely rebuilt it. I'd done a body change on a Model A Ford. Uh, you know, it's, it's, what, it's what kids do. Mm-hmm. So from a kid doing stuff, it was logical to design your own car, even though it was a little, a little kiddie car. Uh, but you still, it's serious. You've got to manufacture parts. You've got to test them. Everything's got to work hopefully, up to this opening day that would be in July of 1955. So I got my engineering, if you want to call it that, on the job through every job I ever worked on over all those 250 jobs I mentioned. They were all different. I never did anything over, which meant I never got good at anything because everything was new and you never went back and did anything over. That's incredible. That is. And when you think that that was just one project of what well, had to be many going on to get that park ready for opening day. And what was the atmosphere at the studio and at WED like? Oh, the studio atmosphere, I, I was, you know, I was like in a giant toy store because, you know, not only it's, oh, the, the famous Walt Disney. Oh, that is his place. I remember that building. I know the Donald Duck is there someplace. And there's all these fascinating people, and Walt was adding them every week. And uh, and I was, they were all, everybody was friendly to everybody. You know, like right away in a matter of a few weeks, Herb Ryman says, "Hey kid, you want to see my drawings? I got I got drawers full of big drawings. You might like them." You know, it's just stuff like that. You so you wind up meeting people that turned out all be wizards and, and legends over over the time. Um. Walt had people squirreled away throughout that entire lot. Some were in the animation building, some were in the machine shop, some were over in the car barn building, some were out hidden by in the ink and paint. Uh, nobody really knew where they were, but Walt knew where all of them were. So we were really, um, uh, you know, almost like a, a stealth team hidden everywhere. <laughs> which, of course, uh, you know, created trouble because by uh, August of 1961. Uh, we got tossed out of the studio because it dawned on the studio that, hey, Walt's got his own personal guys working in there and he's not paying the rent. So we have to leave. <laughs> oh, that's funny. <laughs> now, now, the opening day of Disneyland came to be referred to as Black Sunday by those who were there. What was that day like for you? 
Oh, that was so exciting because, you know, we've been working ferociously uh, seven days a week. And, uh, of course, you know, we were supposed to work uh, six days a week, and he was paying us for five. But we really worked seven anyway. So, you know, we were too too excited. You know, we wanted to see this thing go. Uh, So uh, I've been driving back and forth. It's a two-hour drive down there, two-hour drive back, uh, you know, all those weeks leading up to the park. So I get there in the morning. Uh, ready to go. Walt wanted me to uh, be in charge of some, oh, maybe a dozen Autopia cars. We had to move them from the ride, put them over uh, by the opera house to stage them into the parade. And then at the end of that parade, we'd drive them back, put them back on the, um... yeah, you didn't turn your cell phone off there, fella. <laughs> I think it's the little phone here that I thought was off. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that reminds me. I should turn mine off here. Okay. <laughs> Time out a minute. We got we busted all the rules here, so uh, <laughs> that's okay. okay. All right, man. Mine's mine, mine's going off here. Okay, no, hang on just a second. I got to push the button just right, and then it's one of those things you it's happy. You push that, and then you say yes, and then it turns itself off. Okay, sorry about that. That's okay. Yeah, but um, so the. Not only is Disneyland getting ready to open, and I'm assigned to moving the cars on Autopia, and a new attraction, a little kitty car bump ride, and all the cars are my design, the whole thing in the car. And this is going to be fabulous. Well, it didn't quite didn't quite work out by the end of the week. <laughs> and on top of that, they have uh, television cameras, television crews, uh, power cables, cameras, giant uh, machines in those days, and uh, this there was no uh, tape recording, so every camera had to be pre-positioned in every place, and all of the uh, hosts that had to walk around had to walk through all these cables and go to each camera location over a period of about 90 minutes. So just that operation alone is as big as trying to open Disneyland. Then on top of that, a lot of people that had been invited, they duplicated the tickets, and some of them were coming over the back fence with ladders. And we had roughly twice as many people as were supposed to be there. So there's there's three things all ganged up. So yes, uh, somebody would call that black uh, black you know black Monday or whatever day we call that or Black Sunday. Um, but to other people, it was like wow. It opened. People love it, and they're here. Terrific. They're all trying to drive Autopia. Yeah, but at the end of the week, there was out of the 37 cars running, there was only two left running. And (laughs) I found out, oh, my, there's a lot of stuff about mechanical engineering that I don't know, and I have to learn this right now. Mm Mm-hmm. So how long did it take before all the cars were back up and running? I immediately went into a, a situation of, since we had 37 cars roughly, there was two police cars, so they weren't getting as, as much use. And we had the Walt special, that, you know, which was just on a little turntable thing. But what that meant was every time I have to uh, fix something, I have to fix it like 40 times. Multiplied. Usually you make a test car and then you produce it. Well, all of these cars, we had no time to really test anything. So the real learning is it wouldn't have done any good because we didn't know how the kids are going to treat the cars. Had we engineered them completely, they would have beat them up exactly the same and we would have been in the same pickle. 
Mm-hmm. So, uh, so it all worked out. So every day I'm down there. I had a big yellow 51 Cadillac convertible. I parked it right on the track at the Autopia ride. I mean, <laughs> I blew the blew the art direction right out of the window there. <laughs> Uh, we had no mechanics, so I had my own uh, box of tools. So I was repairing the cars and making designs for the replacement parts so that we could buy them or, or make them, whichever the case. And uh, it was probably another week before Walt uh, walked around behind the, the ride and just quietly looked at everything. And he says, well, Bobby, what do you need? And I said, well, we don't, we don't have any mechanics. There's nobody over here. There's no shop, nothing. Nothing. And it was obvious to him that, you know, I got my car parked right there in the attraction, and he could see I'm working working on them. So uh, about 20 minutes later, here's uh, this tractor's coming down the road by the railroad tracks, dragging a small building. And this guy says, uh, Walt wanted me to um, bring this building over here, so where do you want your bleep building? <laughs> and so we had a shop. <laughs> and two guys showed up, so, oh, now we're getting someplace. Now, uh, instead of me just fixing the stuff, we got three guys fixing stuff. Mm-hmm. So I think it was within maybe two weeks, we pretty much had cars that would run almost all day. They would break down for newer things every week. But I think by the time we got to Labor Day, uh, they were they were running good. Good enough that it was okay. Excellent. Good. I, I love how you, you said this is what we needed, and in 20 minutes, Walt made it happen. <laughs> oh, no, Walt was like that. He could, uh, you know, he didn't have to go through people. He he was not an order order giver or anything. He would pop in and do whatever is necessary. Look how many times that there were pictures on the Internet of Walt picking up trash on Main Street. Mm-hmm. He saw a piece of trash, that, and the people that were, I mean, custodial guys weren't in sight. He just bent over, pick it up, and open the door to the trash bin and pop it in, you know, while he's going along with his guests. A lot of us did that, and you know, still do that. You know, we treat that. That's my park. There's some trash. I'll pick it up. Guests do that too. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Especially Disneyland guests, they they definitely feel a sense of ownership of yes. the park. Very unique feeling. Yes. There. Yeah. Now. Um, now, now the interesting thing about the Utopia cars—they are—they're not a thrill ride attraction. Really simple attraction, yet they are hugely popular. They have been for generations. Why do you think they have maintained their popularity at Disneyland and the Magic Kingdom? Well, prior to the opening of Disneyland, if you go back through the amusement business, from the time cars were invented, somebody made a little putt-putt kitty cars, put them in, in any kind of a little amusement place, particularly, particularly a little mom-and-pop things. And then, of course, at the same time, for uh, bigger amusement parks, they would have the Dodgem cars. In other words, mm-hmm. these are pump cars. Everybody knows when you say Dodgem, you know what it is. It's the car that has the metal floor and has the pole going up the back with the sparks on the ceiling, you know, transferring electricity uh, into the motor of the car. Uh so those were the most fun. You go to any amusement park, oh, man, as soon as you're big enough, you're going to get your daddy to buy a ticket so you can go drive a car so that you can really hit people with that car. <laughs> so this is a standard uh, sort of expectation in life, uh, particularly little boys. 
And of course, where there's gasoline cars that are, are not connected to this post rubbing on the ceiling, that's even more fun. You could say, oh, that's got a motor. Oh, that's got gasoline. Oh, sometimes it's dirt. And you just have to drive it. There's something about little boys and, and you know, girls to some extent. You got to get your hands on something where your parents aren't doing it for you. You are doing it. Mm-hmm. This is why the idea of having an attraction where you are in control is so so much more important to a child than something that's passive that that's it's cute and nice and you ride it because your parents put you on it. So you come out of attractions that are little like rotary things with ponies and boats and all that kind of stuff, and then one day is. Oh, it's a disconnected car with a gasoline motor, and I'm going to drive it. Oh, but i got to be 42 inches tall. I'm not 42 <laughs> inches tall yet. So the agony, oh, my parents will bring me back when I'm 42 inches. <laughs> You're right. You know, I'd never thought of that, that children have control over that attraction. They don't have over other attractions. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's an innate, learned experience uh, in in the American experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I have a totally new appreciation now for the Utopia cars. <laughs> and um, now now those weren't the only cars that were there that you designed on opening day. Um, Walt wanted authentic turn of the century vehicles to add to the mood of Main Street USA, and he turned to you for that solution as well. Yes, uh, uh, Walt had Roger Brogy talking to a guy out in San Bernardino, California, a guy by the name of Doc Lorenz, who was a collector of antique cars. And Doc was trying to sell a bunch of these to Walt and said, well, you just fix them up and they'll be very authentic. So Roger and I uh, went out and talked to the guy, and there was just one chicken coop and barn after another with these cars, you know, 1905, 1910 cars. Uh, And... uh, when we got back and I looked at Walt, he said, what do you think? And I said, you know, yeah, they're authentic, but it'd be completely futile to try to restore and build parts over and over for some of these uh, old cars. They, they really are just big old clunkers. You know, they're just, they're not the thing to do. Well, Bobby, what are we going to do? Well, Walt, I can make a car that's old, but it's brand new. That's not a problem. It's easy. Well, well, let's see a new one. <laughs> so uh, I, uh, the car came together very, very quick, the overall design, because first off, let's say a car is going to have a simple chassis. The wheels will be on the bottom. You put the engine and powertrain in it, and you put the body on the top. That's all there is to it. The body is nothing more than sheet metal and a few other parts, which are really, really easy to do if it's a 1905 style. Okay. So, mechanically, we have to have something that is brand new. So, I studied specifications of uh, engines and transmissions and axles. So, uh, follow me through here. We start with a radiator. Okay, we got a two-cylinder engine. It's got a fan. That'll cool the water in the radiator. Okay, the back end of the uh, engine, has. we can put a number four SAE flywheel on it, which means I can then put a Warner T9 transmission from a taxi cab with a three-speed floor shift. Now, on the back end of that, we can put a mechanics design U-joint and then run a drive shaft to a Jeep uh, axle that's made by Spicer, a 54-10 axle. And then on the axle ends, 
I can uh, put um, uh, brake drums from the from a Jeep, and then take wheels that look like Model T wheels, and then put a, a, a like a Model A Ford axle in front with no brakes. And guess what? We have a full functioning chassis, and it's all store bought forever. So all the cars we ever did that way, did that up until about 1969 when we were building for Walt Disney World. The, the engine company that was making the engine, the wooden patterns burned up in a fire, and we, had to, we couldn't get that same engine, two cylinders, so we got a four-cylinder engine instead. So basically, that's the idea. Well, we just want an antique car that fits the design of Disneyland, but we have to have a modern set of parts that we can uh, drive and refurbish forever easily. And that's the way it is. And that is the way it is. Those cars are still running up and down Main Street, USA. Now, there's a couple I know that are very special cars for you, and that is the fire engine and Walt's little yellow runabout. Can you tell us the story of those? Yes, yeah, several years before I went over to the Disney studio, uh, I was a good friend of uh, Ward Kimball because he was in the Horses Carriage Club. You know, it's an antique car club, and I was in the, in the same club. And the fellow that published my books was a very good uh, friend of his. Uh, so one day, uh, Ward Kimball was going to drive his fire engine in a parade in Temple City, but he also wanted to drive his Maxwell fire chief's car. So he phones up uh, my friend Dan and says, have you got anybody that can drive a 1916 American La France? And now these two guys tease each other all the time. So Dan, Dan says, yeah, I got, I got a guy right here. I'll be right down to your house. And then Dan tells me, he says, oh, you get to drive Ward's fire engine. Don't worry about it. He's going to teach you how to drive it when you get there. <laughs> I, get, <laughs> I get down there and uh, I get into you know right hand drive, great big levers on the side of the car, and I know it's got a technically got a, a leather cone clutch which is quite jumpy. Ward gets on a running board on the right side and he says, "Okay, the radiator leaks, uh, start it up, and we'll drive to the gas station, fill it up with water." There was not going to be any instruction. Hmm. Somehow, with my curiosity and my paying attention to stuff. I pushed the right thing, pushed and pulled the right levers, and actually found the right, correct gear without breaking it, drove to the gas station, put the water in it, and within a few minutes of driving that fire engine, I could, I could shift it without using the clutch. Big, great big old 1916 American in front. That was the fire engine and the firehouse plot five plus two. The ward drove all over oh, the place. Okay. Well, guess what? When you're a little kid and you drive a fire engine, you want a fire engine, and I'll never have enough money to own a fire engine. Well, in 1958, Walt comes into my office and I says, Hey, Walt, you know, we don't have a fire engine on Main Street. No, Bobby, we don't. And a few minutes later, the accounting department phones up and says, uh, here's the account project number for the new uh, fire engine job. And I thought, Yahoo, we're going to have a fire engine. <laughs> and, wow. and, it's, and it's based on the same red car and yellow car. You know, same thing, just double wheels and a different body. Mm-hmm. So uh, I was so in love with that little car, I got a Department of Motor Vehicles uh, uh, moving permit. So I drove that car to Disneyland in July 8th of 1958 and delivered that fire engine to Disneyland all the way down there. Two cylinders, goes 30 miles an hour. And so now when I go to Disneyland, that's my fire engine. 
So, and what made it complete was several years ago at the um, um, Halloween parade in Anaheim, I was the Grand Marshal, and they gave me a ride in my fire engine, uh, riding in that parade in that car. Perfect. How nice. Yeah. And, and if you go to BobGird.com, there's a whole bunch of stories. Drill down, and you'll find a story of Ward's fire engine today. Uh, it's in the L.A. County uh, Fire uh, Museum, uh, and I was down there and uh, told stories about it and got my picture taken sitting in that same old fire engine. So it's still there, and I'm still here. Great, and you could probably still drive it. Yep. <laughs> so now, you know, it, it's been joked that the reason Walt built Disneyland was so he could put his train, you know, around it. And I know you built the excursion cars for that train. There's another train, though, that you built that I don't think our younger listeners will know about, and that's the Viewliner. And so, first of all, why did Walt want another train in the park, and and what was the Viewliner? All right. In 1956, we added just enough attractions that we could see the park is really going to be successful. So uh, by the uh, end of 1956, Walt was planning uh, a big expansion in Tomorrowland for 1959. So uh, in planning for that, we were going to add the four or five new attractions. And what do we do in the meantime? We had that northeast part of the park, which is basically full of weeds. We had a circus there for a while, which was not successful. So Walt simply says... Well, well, we'll put a train out there. You know, railroads are so easy. Uh, Tony, our railroad guy, we get some ballast, some ties, and some rail, and he can lay a railroad track real easy, and, and Bobby will design a, lo- design a train to fit on it. Oh? <laughs> <laughs> so I got cracking and, uh, and designed this um, locomotive and the cars. It was a fast engineering job. And again, it was like a car thing. You know, I used a 265 uh, Chevy small block V8 and a power glide transmission, a Jeep transfer case, and a couple of Mercury axles. Rigged the whole thing up with a belt drive. And so we had a powertrain. And uh, and instead of building a whole front of the locomotive, I thought, well, I'll go to the junkyard and buy a 54 Oldsmobile body and chop that down. And now we got a windshield and doors and everything. We say we, you know, we do something really fast now. So that little train uh, only took like six months to design, engineer, and build two of them because it was a temporary deal. Along with a, a smaller Autopia ride, there was like a little junior Autopia in the same area, uh, and something to do with a little boat ride. But Walt thought ahead. In 1959, we're going to put a great big something. So let's have something there for maybe two years. So that it looks like there's something there. And then uh, as we're going to build the 59 project, well, we'll just rip all that stuff out and throw it away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, now, the, I know the V-Liner started on June 26, 1957. You were the, um, what well, was the first fireman, and you were the engineer. And, and then it ended its run on September 15, 1958, to clear the way that, for, I think for a lot of us, this is your most enduring project, and that's the monorail. Yes. And I can't think of one thing other than the castle that's most closely associated with the Disney theme park than your monorails. And I know that on one of the first renderings of Disneyland by Herb Ryman, Walt envisioned a monorail in the park, but the one you designed was very different from Walt's vision 
in that conceptual artwork. So what was the process for the monorail that um, we're still enjoying today? Well, you just said the bad word. I don't like the word process because the word process mm-hmm. implies you have a bi-rote path that you do something. If you start at point A and go to point Z, you automatically have something. Mm-hmm. Well, that ain't the way it works. Uh, when you don't have a process, this means you can jump in any direction with any uh, sequence of doing stuff to fit what it is you're doing, and you're not following a process. A lot of people just cannot understand that. Uh-huh. So I got the process out of the way here, so okay. Okay, good. But uh, Herb Ryman's drawing, you got to remember, those two guys were sitting there a whole weekend, and, and you know, Walt said, say, I'd like one of these. Say, you know, I'd want to do something like that. And, you know, and the only monorail anybody knew was the French Seifage type, which is an overhead hanging one, which is kind of based on the, German Wuppertal, one of 1898. Uh, also, there's a uh, there's some other documents. I got a copy of them where Walt is listing out all the his wish list of things that's going to be in Disney. And in that wish list uh, from I think 1953 is uh, monorail, but no further description of, of beyond the word monorail. So one day, pulled out of the blue, Walt comes in my office with some pictures of a of a German monorail, a type that. Uh, uh, sits on a beam. I'd never seen this configuration. I had no idea there was a thing like that. And to me, the German train of kind of World War II uh, bomber type thing. It was looked like a loaf of bread with a slot in the bottom sitting on a stick. It really wasn't very graceful. And Walt just quickly says, "Well, Bobby, I, I want you to d- d- design a monorail for me." And that was that. Walked out of the room. They're just like that. So within about two weeks, uh, I came up with enough of the mechanical configuration of the uh, monorail train based upon the little viewliner train. If you look at the viewliner train and you look at the first monorail, there, there's a lot of similarities in the body design. So it was not like starting without knowing anything. You know, all of a sudden it's like, well, you know, body structure, that's pretty straightforward. We'll know how to do that. Had to work out the suspension, how the suspension's going to work and all that. And plus the design of it, you know, the appearance. Because in about two weeks, Roger and I had to go to Germany and negotiate uh, the, the the job in Germany with the Allway company. So it's amazing that from the time Walt said we're going to do something, within two weeks there was enough engineering drawings uh, as such that you could explain what it is and we already had an outside drawing of it that I'd made that uh, John Hench later uh, put the uh, color on it which that monorail picture called monorail crossing has been printed a hundred million times all over the world which means Disney is now stuck with a iconic uh, monorail as as it's iconic can't get away from monorail now but it, it was in two weeks and the actual styling of that monorail was actually about a 10-minute sketch of thinking of how do I hide the slot in the bottom of the loaf of bread. So <laughs> the, Buck, the Buck Rogers cartoon, you know, going way back to the 30s, always had that pointy-looking rocket. It had, like, a porthole things and a big window in the front, but it had, like, what I would call sled runners. There was, like, two fins that were kind of splayed out a little bit like a little kid's sled, because you remember, uh, you'd land on the planet and then slide to a halt on this little sled runners. Mm-hmm. 
Well, if you have the pointy nose and you have these little flared uh, fins, you immediately hide the fact that the body is, is pretty tall. And if you put a streamlined nose and these little fins, you actually still have the slot in the bottom. But your eye does not see it that way. Your eye will only see the, the dramatic shape of the front of the train. And I've hidden the bad part and made it go away. That's strictly camouflage. Uh, that's the only trick to it. It was just as simple as that. Uh, the design In those days, you know, we didn't go round and round and round with 10,000 pictures and arguments and, and committee meetings and bios and all that stuff. It was like Walt said he wanted it. God, we're out of time. What do I do? Let's go straight to the problem and go straight to the answer and go now. Simple as that. And it's beautiful. I, I mean, when people... I mean, I think when all of us and we see the monorail, it, it, I don't know. I think it stirs people's hearts. It stirs people's imagination. Uh, what, what do? You, what is it about the monorail? Do you think does that to people? I think you've got to go back to say, coming out of World War II, nineteen forty-five, six, seven, eight. Um, everything seemed modern. Like there's a really is a great big beautiful tomorrow is coming. There was a lot of negative stuff we have now that uh, just did not exist. Everybody was upbeat. Uh, by the time we get to 1952, 3, 4, in that era, cars were every car. Some cars had three different colors on them. It was a very colorful period. Uh, the type of um, simplistic modern furniture, the type of colors were like joyous pastel colors. Everything to do with America and the world was big, beautiful, fun stuff. I mean, it was like, golly, Mickey Mouse is singing and, and all the cars are crazy and Walt wants a monorail. Oh, I know exactly what we're going to do. So it plopped into 1955 based upon the overall social awareness and social feeling where everybody was positive, optimistic, very upbeat, totally unlike today. The young folks today have no no idea of the feelings of upbeatness about everything that, that we had. And that's why Disneyland launched itself like an, like an absolute rocket ship. And four years later, we had a train that looked like a bit of a rocket ship. And it locked itself in as the icon. Yeah, I, yeah. And, you know, Walt and I did a show on that, how it, Walt Disney... His attitude, his vision, his positive outlook of the future, I think it did a lot to shape that um, that feeling in America about a positive future. Yes, yeah, you're completely right. Um, I know it's always hard when I when somebody gives me this question that you, that you just did. Um, you got to remember, you, you talk to young people today and you're very aware of the context of their current world, which is full of you know, ISIS, conflict, uh, North Korea, uh, maybe atomic weapons, uh, strange kind of government going on today, a bit of everything that is would drive anybody deeper into their smartphone and they wouldn't even want to read a newspaper anymore. But I can assure you it was not like that in the uh, coming out of the late 40s, going into the early 50s. Everything was exciting. Everything was colorful. Everything was upbeat. Television was super funny. Everything was just, and there were 
you know, the entertainment world was just full of super classic, funny people. Nothing was serious. Nothing was rude. Nothing was crude. No four-letter words. No, no, no blue humor or anything. Mm-hmm. Entirely different world. It's hard to explain it. No, but, but I think that's why people love Disneyland and Walt Disney World, because it, it, has, it still captures that. You're right. That's why yeah. I think the uh, Disneyland particularly, because it's sort of that little personal dainty size compared to all of the other parks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Now, you, you have a funny story that I know you've told us a million times about the opening day of the monorail. A dedication day, you and Walt, and a very high-ranking politician at, at the time. And our, our younger listeners might not have heard this story. All right. Well, uh, today when you open a new attraction, you might test and adjust it for a year or many, many months at a time. Uh, the monorail uh, got designed and built and uh, brought up to uh, opening day so fast, which was only eight and a half months from the time that Walt said designed it until the time we're going to open it. And we only had two weeks to do any testing, so we had no time to train uh, a manager, no time to train ride operators. So um, I I was the driver, and the train broke down every day. But the night before the opening day of the monorail, it actually ran around one lap by itself and did not break, so we didn't have to engineer uh, something in the middle of the night. So I didn't want to put it back in the barn. I said, okay, we're going to put it right here in the station, uh, because we got a movie tomorrow, not a movie, but we got a, a 90 minute uh, TV program. Uh, if we cut the ribbon and we drive out of sight and it, and, it, and it catches fire and stops, fine. They already got their TV shot. That's what they need. That's the primary thing. So, about uh, 11 o'clock, super hot day. Here comes Walt. Oh my God, he's got our security. Oh, he's got five guys in black suits. Oh, he's got the vice president of the United States with his wife and the two little girls. Well, if Walt's got something nobody else has got, well, he's going to show it off. He'd written a letter to his friend Dick Nixon. I got a copy of the letter he sent to the White House. Dear Dick, we're going to open uh, uh, new attractions. We're going to have a monorail, and we got a lot of room in a hotel. Uh, bring the wife and the kids out, and, uh, and uh, help me cut the ribbon on this monorail. So that's as simple as that. The two guys are friends. So uh, we get up there, and Walt wants to show him the train, the inside of him. And I says, well, just a minute. It's very hot. I'll give me, i got to turn the air conditioning on. Give me a few minutes here. Turn the air, turn the 600-volt power on. Turn the air conditioning on. And finally, we, we all go pile into the nose of the train. And Walt was kind of funny. He looks at Dick, and he says, well, you know, Dick, he says, I'm the, uh, I'm the steam guy here. I drive the locomotives, but this is modern electric transportation of tomorrow, and it's electric, so I let Bobby drive it. Pause. Well, give him a ride, Bobby. I <laughs> just drove off. I didn't say a word to anybody on the radio or anything. So we go around, and in those days, the train made a slight right turn, it up a hill, came down to the left, came down over the submarine waterfall, which meant Nixon could now see that all the Secret Service are on the platform, which meant none of them were in the, in the train. And, of course, that put my hair on end because we're now over the sub-lagoon and we don't have the uh, safety procedures to exit the train when it catches on fire over the water. So drive around and, oh, Nixon had some very choice uh, Nixon-type words when he saw that. 
So we drive around, come back to the station, and uh, I'm oh, glad to get it back and park it where we had it so we can cut the ribbon. And uh, the girls want to go again. Well, so we'll give them another ride. I was so upset. I just cannot even remember anything <laughs> on that second ride other than the fact that the Secret Service were running toward the train as I was going to supposedly stop. Then they were running with it while I'm driving by. And <laughs> when we get back, uh, I stop the train. We all get out. We walk down the speed ramp, and Nixon turns around, and he looks up there. The Secret Service did not follow him down the ramp. They're all sitting in the train. <laughs> okay. Funny. I go back up to the platform where a German engineer, Conrad Deller, had been helping me for the past two weeks. He is really mad, and he says, Mr. Bob. In Germany, they spend seven million marks and seven years developing the Allweg monorail, and we never let the public on it. You stupid Disney people, you get it running one night, and you put your vice president on it. And the man <laughs> was furious. And I said, Conrad, this Walt Disney, that's the way we do it. <laughs> so, such a a giant gap between the formal German engineering approach to doing something and the way Walt Disney would do something. Yes. Well, and, you then, just, and then be in the middle of that pickle. Yeah. Yeah. Walt Disney was, you know, you just, we built it, you take it out. <laughs> so, now, another transportation system that's really missed by Disneyland guests is the Wedway People Mover. Uh, now, a version of that is still at the Magic Kingdom. And this transportation system was to be the backbone of Walt's Epcot City. And how did the idea for the People Mover come about? Well, in the New York uh, World's Fair, 64, 65, there was a number of uh, sponsored attractions that had various types of uh, transport. And uh, one of them, I think it was AT&T, I think, had a, a vehicle system that you uh, rode in these little cars and you uh, went from scene to scene to scene, you know, telling a good story. General Motors also had a, um, a really super high-capacity attraction that was like a, a bunch of pallets with a bunch of patio chairs on it. So wherever you went, you only saw the back of the chair in front of you, and you just have to see whatever's on the right and left. Ford Motor Company ride was a little bit like that, but the cars were individually uh, powered by uh, the, uh, the um, Magic Skyway track design that I had designed. But you still were facing uh, ahead and following the taillights of the car ahead. So shortly after uh, we opened that, uh, I was over in John Hench's office and uh, just chatting in general about how can we uh, tell stories better. And uh, I said, well, you know, when you, you have the, an attraction where um, you, you, you just have to look right and left and you've got, you know, a car in front of you, we could make a chassis that rides on the track. And instead of putting the seats on the chassis, we could put the seats on a little pod and uh, and we could move that pod to right and left and up and down so we could direct the guest's uh, viewpoint into the actual scenes. And he just happened to have this red candied apple sitting there on his desk and I picked it up and I twirled it, you know, as, as a way to demonstrate the thing. And I says, you know, uh, we can move people through uh, attraction like that, but we can look in all directions. And of course, at that time, I'm a, I'm a pilot 
And one of the radio navigational aids that was very common is a thing called Omni Range, Omni being uh, all around. So I just, right there in the middle of conversation, I says, yeah, we could just I'm looking all directions. Yeah, it's, a, it's an Omni mover. You know, it, we, the art directors, we can save a lot of time between scenes because instead of waiting for the car to go around a corner, you could have somebody pop out of a scene on the right, twirl, twirl a pod, and immediately go to the scene on the left, you know, and vice versa. If you want to look up at a ceiling, well, you can do that. Just tip your way back. You can go down a hill backwards. Um, it's a great way to tell uh, stories in a, in a much more efficient manner at a very high capacity, too. So... We were starting on the Monsanto attraction for a voyage through inner space with some kind of conveyance. And, boy, that job took off so fast I got approval like within a day or two. Oh, let's do this. So I immediately had a young engineer I was training, a guy by the name of Bert Brunich, who was really sharp. Because by those days, I couldn't design everything. I had to do all the layout work and start handing it off to other guys because I'm working on four or five jobs at a time. So I, I managed Bert handling all of the details, and while doing that, the Haunted Mansion people for like, oh, year after year after year, they were trying to figure out how are we going to do a walkthrough. Roly Crump and, um, and uh, Yale Gracie were always figuring out these gags, and they were, yeah, I had a lot of gags for a Haunted Mansion. And then one day they saw what I was doing for the uh, uh, Voyage to Inner Space, and they said, that's it. So today when you ride... The Doom Buggies, everybody remembers the Doom Buggies and the Omnimover as the first one. Well, years before was the Monsanto Voyage Through Inner Space was actually the first Omnimover. We have probably more than a dozen of those Omnimover systems all around the world with all the different parts because it's an extremely simple thing. It's got a lot of parts, of course, but uh, one of... You have a chain of vehicles. You don't have to have an anti-collision system because they're all they're all connected. They're you know, and you and then they're close together. But since you're turning and looking to different ways, you're not like looking at the back of the car. It's it's an extremely simple thing, and it works. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And now, do you think there's ever a possibility we'll get a people mover back at Disneyland? I was supposed to answer your people more of a question, but it was it was kind of led by what got going with Monsanto, which is so important to begin with. Along those same lines, with this AT&T attraction, uh, I saw that we could have vehicles that rather than it being a, cha- a train, we would have individual vehicles because... Um, Walt wanted to do something that's overhead where you could have something where you could have kind of a, like a broad overview look at, at a new area of Disneyland. And this would be yeah, sort of like, you know, a public transportation device, but it'd also be like a, a preview of looking at an area. So these two jobs were developed uh, very, very much in, in parallel. That's why I momentarily drifted off into that one. Um, Again, a body, people, uh, wheels, and since we use the, the little um, wheels embedded in the track for the Ford Motor Company ride, which were based, by the way, on the booster brake wheels on the Matterhorn, it was very logical to put the wheels in the track so the cars uh, were completely passive and would just be propelled in trains of four on the uh, wheels on the track. 
So that again, that was a very straightforward one. But the big difference was uh, Walt was on vacation in uh, in uh, Europe, and uh, when he came back, I showed him a design I had for a rotating turntable that would give us the ability to come up through the center ring and step on the turntable at a much slower speed, step outward to the outside of the turntable, which is going at a much faster speed, and then have the vehicles moving just a hair faster than that. And what that meant was the, the trains, the cars are really close together in the station, but then they speed up and are uh, separated by a much bigger distance going at a faster speed. Now, that means we keep the high capacity, but we still have a, a nice, fast uh, uh, moving attraction. The other thing Walt wanted was the whole family's going to go. This is not a roller coaster. It's not a thrill ride. You know, you put the regular family in there, and, you know, and the mother's got the little baby, and even Grandpa will go along with the kids, you know, to ride the thing. Um, all that disappeared in the zeal to make Disneyland more visually dynamic, and there was an attraction that replaced the, uh, the people mover for a, an extremely uh, short period of time. Because it was not well thought out as to why why is it there? What is its purpose? Where the difference is Walt sees something and understands its purpose. And in the case of the uh, Omnimover and the Wedway, both those were conceived with that kind of thought. Yeah, yeah. We hope that someday we'll get our people mover back, some version of it. But who knows? So, now, Walt saw the monorail and people mover as something that he hoped would be embraced by cities and urban planners to to resolve, you know, the the um, you know the backup on freeways and all that. Um, why do you think that, that that just never happened? Why didn't city planners embrace the monorail and people mover as solutions to city you know, problems? That to me, that is a big puzzle in a way. America tells the world we're the greatest civilization in the history of civilizations. Uh, wave our flag, and we're, we're the leaders of everything. But somehow, we're conventional stick-in-the-muds. Uh, governments, the way some governments operate, uh, they really are resistant to clear future thought. There's just something I can't put my finger on why this is. Because I remember vividly that right after we opened the monorail, a guy from the L.A. Times came over and actually came all the way to my drafting board at the studio and interviewed me about uh, monorail, the possibilities of monorail. And then at the end of the conversation, he asked me something like, he says, well, uh, when do you think we're going to have monorail in Los Angeles? And with my sarcasm, I said, the way this city works, Decades from now, we will still be discussing it, and we still won't have it. And that upset my boss, Roger, when he read it in the paper the next day, because that was not an official Disney statement. Mm -hmm. Well, about two weeks ago, our local mayor, uh, Garcetti, uh, made a big suggestion. Say, we ought to have monorails going on the 405 freeway. This would really uh, speed up the traffic and lower the density. You know, all the same arguments of 60 years ago and I smiled when I read that in the LA Times because the, the, the lady that wrote the story did point out that oh yes uh, this was talked about in 1959 so I thought 
Okay, Roger, that was an official statement because here we are decades later <laughs> and it's still being studied to death. Yeah. Now, the joke, the joke is, anybody who's familiar with the Monorail Society and, uh, and Kim uh, Pedersen's book on uh, monorails, if you look at a person today and they says, oh, we don't want any Chinese anything, certainly no cars or anything, um, well, oh yeah, they got a monorail over there. How many monorails they got? There's more monorails in China than other in the country, and the longest monorail systems over 50 miles are all in China. Now, just a minute, folks. Weren't we ragging on Red China, and we're ragging on everybody's out there in the rice field, and uh, we are the technological leaders of the world? Something's something's out of whack here. Why are we sitting here still discussing monorail and they got cities that's given them perfect answers for, for uh, travel through dense cities. Mm-hmm. I agree. Well, let's hope that that talk comes to something. So, um, <laughs> now, now in 1981, you um, left Disney and you started your own company, GERD Design. And, you know, you have you worked on like another 120 or so projects. I want to touch on a few of them that our, our listeners might not realize were your projects. I remember watching the closing ceremonies of the 1984 Summer Olympics. I was totally blown away by the UFO landing there. And then I hear the commentators say, this was designed by a man named Bob Gurr. And, and if folks have not seen this, you've got to go on YouTube because it's there. And, and they said it was two tons and powered by jet fuel. And only in Southern California could this happen. Then it's all capped off by a seven foot eight inch alien walking out. And OK, how did this happen? <laughs> <laughs> well, Backing up just a little bit, uh, two years before I left Disney, I was told I was no longer allowed to engineer anything because I'm not a licensed engineer. Uh, so they made me a manager of a drafting department. Uh, very unhappy days. And then the day came where I accidentally insulted the chief engineer of the company, and they fired me. Well, in fact, the words they use are very interesting. Uh, Bob has re- requested to immediately seek a career in a new company. That night, I stopped off the bookstore, bought a book, How to Incorporate Myself, on the 13th day or the 14 days they give you before you have to really leave. I had created the Gur Design Incorporated, State of California, 1244 Stock Corporation, and hired myself as the chief executive officer. So I did exactly what they suggested, and I had clients all lined up. One of those clients, as, as a few years went by, was uh, Michael Jackson. He wanted me to do lighting for him. The guy that was designing his stages at that time had a contract to build a flying saucer for the Olympics. But as it turned out, um, he he just couldn't proceed with the job, even though he had subcontractors lined up with the various parts. And he kept asking me, Bob, if you were ever designed a flying saucer, how would you do this and how would you do that? He was picking my brain the whole time while we're rehearsing with Michael Jackson. And then one day he says, I can't do the job, you take it. And that day, the company I was working with, uh, which I can't remember the name of now, it went bankrupt that day. So we're all on the street, but luckily I have the Gurr Design Incorporated company, took over the job, and in um, five weeks, 
engineered, start to finish, tested and operated that darn thing for David Walper, the producer. And we had about um, about a 15-minute opening and a, and a live TV broadcast that that flying saucer had to fit through there in that little window of time. That is a super, super risky job. But again, we're used to how we did stuff for a while. We just got cranking, figured the whole darn thing out, got it all done, ran it, didn't have hardly any trouble with it, other than a test flight, had a little failure there. And the net result was just what you experienced, which is on YouTube today. Visualize this. There's 93,000 people drinking beer in the Coliseum. <laughs> There's a beautiful moon out that night. There's something going to happen. There's something, dancers on the floor of this stadium. And all of a sudden, a glow comes out of the east. And there's this thing in the sky. And it's got flashing lights. And it's got a beating red heart in the center. And it comes up really close in such a manner that the television broadcasters cannot see it behind them. But everybody else does. So 93,000 people are all going, oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) All they said was, "Uh uh-oh, something's going to happen here if you go back and listen to their soundtrack, because they were 10 10 seconds late. And then we see it. Um, It's an apparition. It's in the sky. you, you do something so that you're a few seconds ahead of everybody's thoughts. Like somebody sees something, they say, oh, that reminds me of, oh, that looks like. Stay a few seconds out in front of them. They can't finish that thought without having to absorb the next new thought. After a few seconds of that, people just go, oh, my God. So you see what we've done? And it's only a machine just hanging from a helicopter. They hear a helicopter. Yeah, we hear a helicopter. I got a 100-foot cable that I bought to hang it from a, a Bell 314 helicopter, painted black, F.A. says, painted black, you, you get a permit to run it with no lights. So we got two police helicopters with all their lights on, trying to trying to stop it and arrest it. It's a Martian. What are we going to do with a Martian? We got to arrest it. We got police helicopters telling it to land. So they see police helicopters, but they don't see the main black helicopter holding it up 100 feet higher. They believe, they believe the flying saucer. It, it, it was <laughs> believable. It looked like it was right out of Close Encounters of the Third if you, Kind. Yeah, if you, you can go on uh, internet today and there's still people, uh, you know, everybody makes their comments. There's a massive amount of people are still figuring that thing out and some are swearing that that was the Martians. <laughs> and it can't possibly have been built. But once in a while, there's somebody who says, oh, I know how it was done, and I know the man who did it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's <laughs> very yeah, impressive. That was, that was a fun, fun job, but only yeah. five weeks. Wow, amazing. Yeah, and then, and then the whole little laser light show, which in 84, that was groundbreaking. Nobody had seen that before. Yeah. Well, yes, it was a whole bunch of new things. Uh you know, I had about 500 lights on the thing, and we had a guy rigged up all the controls for it. A guy by the name of Newt Schoenberg figured that out, and we got a, a jet engine that ran the uh, generator. whole bunch of quick stuff. Uh, you know, I bought a whole bunch of strobe lights that you plug into, a, you know, your house, and like a flashlight, I just bought a whole bunch and plugged them in. And they just flashed their hearts content with no 
program or anything. Yeah, but they looked synchronized. <laughs> That's what was amazing. Yeah. Right. And, and communicated with the landing pad. I, I mean, it was amazing. Now, you brought this show up already, but visitors to Las Vegas have seen another amazing feat of yours. That is a pirate ship sinking into the water and rising up again several times a night at the Treasure Island Pirate Battle Show. And how do you manage to get a ship to sink and unsink so many times? Well, again, uh, that was a, a curious story. I had heard about this show was going to get developed, and I kept talking to some of my friends, and I thought, oh, boy, I wonder who's <laughs> going to get that job. And that's a weird one, because first off, you don't do uh, anything that's not uh, in the back of the lot where it's behind a curtain if it doesn't work. And this man wants to put it on a sidewalk and with no curtain and no, no way to block it when it won't work. And then he wants fire, and then he's going to have live actors on the thing. And son of a gun, I got a call at, I was consulting at Walt Disney Imagineering R&D department, and I get a, a call from Bruce Gordon saying, uh, uh, Steve Wynn's little brother, Kenny, that runs the Atlanta design department, uh, they have to find a designer by dawn tomorrow, and you and uh, uh, Rocky and Monty from Technoflex get on an airplane and fly up first thing in the morning and talk to them. So that was the short notice. We get up there. Steve Wynn's showing uh, all the press, his hotel, the model, model of the show, the whole thing. And late in the meeting, he looks around and says, okay, who's going to sink the ship? <laughs> That's how desperate he was. He did not have anybody at the press announcement. We put our hands up, and we immediately had a two-hour meeting out in the model shop in the back. And I said, Steve, there's so many ways to sink a ship. Uh, not a problem. You know, there's ways to do this stuff. And he finally says, okay, guys, uh, get going. Give me a preliminary price on Friday. Goodbye. No handshake, no boilerplate, no legal, no signatures, no nothing. Just go. It was so Walt Disney. I was just thinking that. Yeah. Right. So with Technifex, uh, Monty Lundy and Rock Hall and myself, we pulled together a team and uh, everybody did their part of the whole attraction. There was a lot more in the sinking ship. There was a lot of other stuff too. Mm-hmm. But I was in charge of the configuration of the sinking ship. Uh, it's actually just a great big uh, wagon that rolls around on the bottom of a pond. It just happens to look like a ship. They had a tremendous amount of engineering that had to be done on the job, and we got all our drawings done, submitted it to bid. Steve Wynn got the bid, the winning company, as we handed off the drawings. The president of the new company said, pulled me aside and says, Bob, time is short. We want you to do the production drawings because you're the only one who knows this job. And I looked at the guy and I says, just a minute. I have worked my way up to the president of my company. I have worked my way up to a chief engineer now, and you want me to be a draftsman. <laughs> yes. Well, I said yes, figured out a price I would charge him, and went to work and made all the production drawings for not only that ship, all the, the other ship too. Mm-hmm. I stayed ahead of 63 welders in two factories with my little Macintosh and my little software, the way I have high-speed ways of making drawings. So that was totally different, going all the way back to 1955, drawing all the Utopia drawings. I'm now doing production drawings for sh- sinking ships. And it was fun. I love it. 
Yeah, and doing it on computers where before you oh, didn't yeah. have all that. Yeah, yeah, you taught yourself trigonometry to build the Matterhorn. Yes, <laughs> yeah. So back to your original ideas of yes, you uh, always say yes. Uh, you will learn on the job far better than if you had paid for a, a formal education. A lot of people, that's the way they work around the world, and it's it's a really a slick way. It's the kind of people that uh, was attractive to a wall. And we all learned those lessons, and we all went off and did our the rest of our career projects in the same manner. Yeah. Now, my generation grew up watching Walt Disney on television each week, and if we were lucky, we caught a glimpse of him in the park. Is the Walt Disney we saw on television each week the same Walt Disney you knew and worked with? Uh, partly. When Walt's on camera, he's talking about something he's doing. So naturally, he's he has that little pixie look. If you really look at the black and white uh, images of him when he's, when he's moving... As those eyebrows are just doing a dance. It's you know when you when you're excited over something and you're telling stuff people about it. Uh, it's in your face. It's in your face so so strongly. Uh, but he's like that, and at the studio, when we're talking about stuff in exactly the same way. But when he's not, and we're just doing the regular stuff around the back lot, you know, he's, he walked around all the time. He would uh, walk through the buildings. He'd walk, in, walk into the shops. Everybody learned to keep your door wide open because he might show up at any time, uh, virtually never an appointment. Uh, and he could be coming down a hall, and about 10 seconds out, you'd hear that little double cough that he had, which was a courtesy thing that says, clean your act up quick. There's 10 seconds. I'm coming in your room. <laughs> um, so you're used to that kind of a a, a daily life. He um, was always serious about what we're working on because he's always trying to figure stuff out. A lot of times stuff doesn't work, so he's in a bit of agony over that. Of course, he, everybody knows he had a physical uh, injury on the back of his neck from uh, playing polo when he was much younger. So he had pain at the end of the day, of course, but... Um, so that left him, I would say, sort of grumpy in a way, the kind of a standard semi-grump-like, but it's mostly because his mind is 100% focused on all the stuff he's doing. The difference is this. If there was a 10 seconds of dead time someplace and Walt is there, how many guys will want to fill a dead time with a typical used car salesman story of, say, Walt, did you ever hear about the minute you started to say that, Walt's serious face got really serious, and that eyebrow went up so fast. Do you know what you just did? You just proved to Walt that you are not spending 100% of your thinking time on his job. Whoops. That is the most important part. So you can understand the serious look he would have from time to time working with people when they didn't catch on, you're supposed to be thinking about my stuff 100% of that time. That's why you're here. So, and, and, you know, you hear stories of that, that, you know, they say he's demanding. Yet at the same time, he was fatherly and supportive and that he would rarely compliment people directly. Yet most of the people that worked with him were unfailingly loyal and had a deep affection for him. Um, 
what what it what was it about Walt that engendered this loyalty and dedication from others? That, that's a really hard one to put your finger on because on one hand, your your regular day with him was on one hand it had to be uh, smooth and face to face, person to person. But on the other hand, you couldn't hide the fact that this is one of the most wizard gods on the planet Earth. It's Walt Disney. He had that effect on people outside the company. Even big executives and big companies got nervous around him because they're aware that they are in the presence of Walt Disney. But Walt always did everything he could to calm everybody down because one time he said something to the effect, he says, he says, I, I can't have people gushing. I have to talk to them. And so we have to talk. And that one's kind of to let everybody know that, look, I'm Walt, but just just set that aside. we we got to figure some stuff out here so we could just have a regular regular day. But at the same time, uh, you knew exactly who he was. You knew how good he was. You knew that his decisions almost always were going to pay off. You couldn't wait to go to an opening night of a new attraction with him. And, and you couldn't say it better than everybody just absolutely loved him. Yeah. Now, now you know, when Craig and I, when we meet listeners connecting with Walt, when we have a lot of, as, as I had told you before, we have a lot of younger listeners. They're just hungering for information about Walt Disney. For youngsters who who didn't grow up with Walt, how, what advice would you give them for how can they get to know Walt? Gee, I've, I've never had, had that kind of a question. I would probably say it, it should actually be quite easy because I would think there's, there's so many books and films and video stuff on the life of Walt Disney uh, certainly the Walt Disney Family Museum looks mm-hmm. strictly at Walt as Walt, not the Disney Company. Um, even some of the books that Marty Sklar has done. Uh, every place you go to read something, sure, each author is going to give you a different idea. But if you look for the little salient points of what Walt did in his, in his daily work that were sort of the in a way, the obvious principles that you could simply say, just do it right. As simple as that. So to look at elements of do it right and examples of do it right, they're all there. You've got to do a lot of searching. But if you go through and start making notes of those things, you'll pick up his daily operating principles in a way, but you'll pick up that ability to have that innate vision that he had and have a sense of you only do stuff right. I think that's excellent advice uh, for all of us, actually. Um, Now, again, Craig and I also hear, and I'm sure you get this question, a lot of our listeners who are middle school or high school age, they tell us they want to be an Imagineer. And what, what, when people ask you that, youngsters ask you that, what, what's your response to them? What's your advice to them? Well, as, as you can probably figure, wherever I go in public, whether it's Disney fans, I'm, I'm literally almost uh, hounded every second for selfies and autographs. But uh, the big request is just what you said. 
um, family will come up to me and say, uh, uh, my youngster here uh, wants to be an Imagineer. Well, I have to get very serious at that point, and because this is serious stuff, I say, just a minute. There's a big difference between being an Imagineer and doing Imagineering work. Don't ever look at a task like that as you want to be somebody. You want to be a something. You'll never get there. You must be capable of be of doing imaginary work. Now you've already you've already suggested you want to be an imaginer, and it means you're going to have to do imaginary work. You've got to realize you've got thousands of imaginers that preceded you, and every one of them was doggone good at what they did, which means. You want to jump into that pile and you want to jump up really high up on that totem pole, you are going to have a very, very hard time because you literally got to at least match everybody that came before you to really be good at that. So at that point, I can sort of tell uh, that the, the parents have got that disappointment look and the child has sometimes got that scared look. And then we get into the next little question. I'll look, suddenly look at the child, whether they're 5 or 15, and I'll say, when you were 5 years old, what turned you on? And if the kid starts telling me everything that he's excited about, aha, I point to the parent and I say, you see, look, see, there, there, there's that spark. It's right there. But if the kid looks at me and he says, what? Um, I have the answer and the parent has the answer. That child never on its own popped into the world with that permanent Walt Disney curiosity and has every year since has been digging into everything. Once in a while, I will run across a child, seven or eight or nine, some right in that range, they are so bright-eyed, they know so much about everything, they can't stop telling me about everything that they know. Those are the winners, and that's only going to be a fractional 1%. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, now, when most people think of an Imagineer, too, they envision someone building audio-animatronic figures or designing attractions, but there, there are other types of jobs at Imagineering, aren't there? It's not just yeah. that. No, uh, any... Uh, Live attraction type of uh, uh, work generally has a minimum of 22 to 23 different uh, specific individual trades all the way from uh, from earth moving to concrete forms all the way to the most exotic uh, directional uh, audio control and development. It, there's so many techniques that go into a good attraction and it involves people that by now have to be super specialists at everything they do but at the same time these super specialists have to have a lot of empathy for the requirements of all the others and particularly the story writers story writers the ones that are really good can understand the elements of a story and can design stories and write out stories that you can actually achieve with by physical means of all these different 22 23 different trades there's even sub-trades and all of that. So for a person to say, I would like to do imaginary work, but I would be totally happy to snip, snip off one little itty-bitty piece of one of those uh, 
sub vendors, I'd love to do just that part because it's a part of the entire whole. That's where your education, you have to suddenly think quite different. Most families conventionally say, my child has to go to college. We have to save the money. It's impossible to save the money to send a child to college. And then they're going to go through what I already told you about. Four years of by-road stuff that actually stopped you from being a curiosity and figuring it out yourself. Uh, you, you, you wind up that you go back to the strongest thing you've got is that innate curiosity to begin with. If you got it innately, you got it. But if you understand the importance and you and you train yourself to be as curious as you were not born, now you're going to be really good because you know how serious this is that you've got to really learn a lot of stuff. Uh, and when you get toward the end of high school, you should think in terms of um, – like city college or vocational schools. A lot of vocational schools, particularly in uh, Ohio and Michigan, to do with the auto industry, these are the best way you can get started because you can go to a two-year college or even a two-year vocational school and pick some of the practical things, not with the idea that I want to go to a fancy college with a 4.0 grade average. No, you want to come out of there in two years. I can weld. I can saw wood, I can paint, I'm good designing stuff on CAD, I finally learn mathematics, I hate the mathematics, but I'm, I'm learning and I'll get there with it. So if you actually have something, somebody could set you down at a desk or a shop or a pile of tools or, or a scene to be painted, and you could actually dive in and do some of it right off the bat. You can't do that coming out of a college, but you can do it coming right out of a vocational school. That's excellent advice. Thank you. And I know we have a lot of young listeners who are going to be listening to this over and over again. So now, even though you retired, you still kept busy. You In 2012, you published your autobiography, Design Just for Fun. And, and that is, it's a fascinating book, great stories, good illustrations. Is there a chance this book will be reprinted someday? Absolutely not, because uh, I was very aware that as uh, so many books are made all about uh, anything to do with Disney, some of them will be published as this is the last version of this, and then five years later there's new material, and the new material goes in and they republish it. Well, the people that are collectors, they don't like that because that means your book goes up in value and then they change their mind and says, oh, well, uh, the editions division will uh, uh, reprint and do it over. Mm -hmm. Well, you're brokenhearted. So I was very aware of that. So uh, I learned early on authors make no money, and I saw that the publishers make the, uh, make the money, so I immediately worked with Carlene Thea at 8 Pen Publishing. Mm -hmm. She says, well, just do it yourself. You can be a publisher. There's nothing to it. Oh, if I've done a monorail, I could be a publisher. Yeah, okay, I'll just do it. I'll just do it. Um, so a, um, the idea was I'll make 2000 and I started taking pre-orders and I'd go to places and they say oh, how many more are you going to make you're going to reprint oh no 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 and every time I said you buy this book uh, you buy it now if there's some of them are serialized you'll never see it again and they'd all clap 
Uh, I could see that, yes, they loved to own the book. They loved to read the book. But they loved to have it in their library as a growing asset for their family. Mm-hmm. Uh, I knew that was going to be very, very important. So once in a while, I've seen them change hands for over $600. You know, it's only $58.95, which is expensive to begin with. But then somebody says, yeah, it's on my library, and I'm not selling it even at $600. So the answer is a permanent no. Okay. Well, it's a terrific book if folks can get their hands on it. I have it in my collection. Um, now, you were recently involved in it with a documentary about your career, and you mentioned it earlier, um, Bob Gurr, Turning Dreams into Reality, which I saw at the Walt Disney Family Museum. And, and, and talk about learning new things, because you, you were a bit more involved in that production than you, were, than you originally anticipated. Yes, Carlene Thee had long uh, wanted to do a documentary on my life, and I really wasn't interested in, in, in doing that. Because, you know, I'd been on so much YouTube and everything, I really didn't want to do another thing. But she was insistent, so one day she got uh, eight people to uh, sit for a couple of days where the principal photography. Six months went by, and I says, Carlene, where's your documentary? She says, oh, Bob, my editor is in over his head. He can't do it. He's not really a writer. Uh, the, 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 the films are, or the tapes are full of errors. And I said, well, send me the tapes. I'll take a look. Oh, my goodness. I could see why there's technical errors. of Everything that could go wrong went wrong in, in about 10 hours of, of, of principal photography. And I felt so sorry for her. And I knew that the subject of a documentary is never, never supposed to be the editor of such a thing. So I said, okay, you buy me the Macintosh and you buy me the software and I'll teach myself how to do uh, high-definition PBS quality uh, um, documentary. Well, there's the thing. That's not my line of work, but I said yes. (laughs) So uh, after about a year's worth of work, we had a, a DVD. Uh, sufficient enough that she could show it and, and, and we could sell them. And uh, that's sort of the backstory. And then there was a PBS documentary, four hour one, all about Walt. It had a number of famous authors uh, all competing for getting the grand words into their stories. A lot of people were upset by some of these um, almost self elected historians that were talking about Walt like they would say, well, when developing this particular project, Walt was thinking, and they said that several times, and I just about came out of my chair like a rocket ship. I worked with him for 12 years. I'm looking him in the face, and I don't know what he's thinking. How dare these historians talk like that about Walt? So my documentary is 100% authentic because I am the editor. Mm-hmm. So that's that, and I don't have to apologize anymore. No, and it's very well done. And we will have a link in our show notes where um, folks can pick it up. I highly recommend it if you want to to get to know Bob better. It's um, eightpendisneyproducts.com, and Craig will have that up for us. And I was going to ask you what you thought of that PBS documentary on Walt Disney. Um, well, sir, I didn't. No, Sarah Cole is a is a wonderful director. I just had the most enjoyable morning with her. But I didn't really realize that the way her project would finally come together would include uh, some 
words by some people that should have not said what they said because some of them had a different view of Walt more than what the real view of Walt really is, according to a lot of us who work with him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. And, and as you mentioned earlier, if you want to know Walt, go to the Walt Disney Family Museum. They do have a DVD they put out on Walt, which I think is a far superior documentary where it's really it's Walt and people who worked with Walt that tell the story and and not and and not you know people who like you say speculate you know on what Walt was thinking um you also offer very unique bus tours called Bob Gurr's Waltland Disney History Bus Tour and can you tell our listeners about this tour yeah, it's curious. Ernie Alonzo, a fellow who lives down in the uh, city of Orange in California, uh, has a long-head haunted mansion type of tours you know, in the city of Orange. And uh, he phoned me up over a year ago and said, Say, Bob, how about a tour of everything to do with Walt's early life? You know, the homes on Lyric Avenue and Woking Way and the, and, the, and the Hyperion Studio and the Merry Ground. I says, Ernie... Uh, I've been doing that for over a dozen years for visiting uh, family. I, I know the route. He said, well, I didn't know that. I, so we put together a, a tour. I designed the route and designed the timing chart for it. And we went out in his car and we did a five-hour run-through and refined everything. Ernie put together um, uh, video clips to tell stories when the bus is moving from one stop to another. And uh, so... I ride the bus with a microphone and I tell stories. And then I people get on the bus and I says, you know, you came here to get the Walt Disney story of this area here, but you're going to get two stories. What you don't know is I lived with my family in this same era, in the same area as Walt Disney, and we'll talk about that and we'll show it to you. Example: I told you earlier when I was 18 months old, I lived within two blocks of Walt Disney's family on Walking Way. Um, the Lyric Houses are next to the John Marshall High School, where my youngest daughter graduated. The Merry Ground in the late 30s, my mother would take my sister and I to ride the Merry Ground. Same as Walt would take Diane and Sharon to ride the Merry Ground. We're doing this together without knowing that we later would find that out. Walt is the guy that would sit on that bench shelling peanuts all over the place thinking of why aren't there amusement parks that are clean where I can take my daughters? Well, I'll just make one myself. So Disneyland's genesis is at a certain spot next to this merry-go-round. And it goes on and on and on. I live very close to the Grand Central Air Terminal, which has just recently got restored as a, a, a historic monument. It was an airport where I hung out as a little kid watching airplanes. It's also the same building that my last year at Disney was there when I was had an office in the corner of that building. So there's all these connections all the way through, even to the point of all oh, works on my paper out as a kid. So there's two stories, and they, they run together in parallel. We make about 16 different stops. It's... Um, Five hours, got a box lunch at the Gene Autry Museum, and we have a nice long stop to ride the merry-go-round. Everybody can ride twice, and then we go to Walt Disney's barn to take a thorough look at uh, Walt's life even closer. Mm -hmm. At the barn he built. Yes. Uh, yes, that's great. And um, 
And I know people who have done that tour, and they say it's incredible. It's fantastic. They really enjoy it. So um, Now, not only are you a Disney legend, you have your own window on Disneyland's Main Street USA above Disney Clothiers. And the window reads, Meteor Cycle Company, Fast, Faultless, Fadless, Bob Gurr. Our vehicles pass the test of time. But this is no ordinary window. It's more than just... A painted window. It's very unique. <laughs> oh, yeah, that window is so pretty. Uh, I believe Marty Sklar writes uh, much of the text that goes on these windows. Because you remember, this is uh, Main Street, Disneyland. It's around 1900, 1905. Uh, it's obviously a bicycle store because people know I'm a mountain biker for many years. So, in addition to the window, there's a physical sign, an actual bicycle. This was a first for windows on Main Street to actually have a physical sign to go with that. Made everybody else very jealous. Of course, Roly Crump got a, got a sign later, later on, too, so that's all right. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that's a very, very important thing, but the words, they, they had to use anti-bicycles, we can't have a monorail there, but they, you look at the words, uh, fast, uh, flawless, uh, you know, leading to the future. Oh, there's the hint about the monorail. Uh, fadless, well, that's another word for classic or icon. And uh, faultless is because, generally speaking, since I was not a licensed engineer, I had a tendency to design stuff really uh, simple and bulletproof. And the mechanics were usually very happy with my stuff because they didn't have all that much trouble with it. So that's sort of a sideways way of uh, saying faultless was, well, yeah, it runs a little better than some of the other stuff that's engineered. So those words do mean something. So uh, it sounds much like what Mar- Marty would have done. And, of course, the last word in there is called design impresario. Well, an impresario is the guy with the red coat and the black boots and the white pant and the whip with all the lions lined up. He's the circus impresario. I will keep that name. I love it. (laughs) And it's well-deserved. Now, when you're at Disneyland and you see families enjoying all the attractions you designed, what goes through your mind? This is the pay. This is better than all the money you ever get paid. Because you get to kind of tag along and watch the look on their faces when they come off of an attraction or when they're just sitting there on a bench looking at something that's really, really, really very nice. Or you'll see the look on three, four, five-year-old kids getting out of the nose of the monorail. They finish the ride. They're just jumping up and down and bragging. They got to ride in the nose of the monorail. Mm -hmm. Uh, You see that effect everywhere. So there's a kind of a... How would you say there's kind of a super warm feeling that you don't have to share with anybody, but it's, uh, it's, it's something private to yourself because you can look at every one of those attractions and in a, in a wink of the eye, you can understand the rationale for it, how it got started, what it was like to do those things, and the fact that uh, some of them are just there and they just keep right on running. So it's a very uh, private thought. Now, now, when Disneyland celebrates its 100th anniversary in 2055, and none of us will be surprised to see you there for that party, um, when, when they have Bob Gurr Day as part of that celebration, how would you like to be remembered? Whoa, you're, you're like, 
what do you want, a headstone or something? Uh, <laughs> no. Uh, nothing should be said because it's already been said and experienced all these years. Mm-hmm. People just, they know the name. Uh, they know it's connected to typically vehicles. Um, whatever has to be said has already been said. Nothing more ever needs to be said. Well, Bob, I just want to thank you for making our lives a bit happier, filling our minds with wonder, awe, and curiosity. And thank you so much for making this a memorable episode of Connecting with Walt. Um, It's been an honor for us to speak with you. Well, I love talking to people who have got some very, very thoughtful questions. Uh, You had your questions all lined up very well. And uh, the type of question which you can't give a simple answer. Some of these answers are fairly long and fairly thorough because there's a lot of nuances that go in to, to getting a correct answer for you the way you uh, put the questions. Well, thank you. And I look forward to seeing you. I'm going to see you on September 23rd. For you have a very special event, actually, as part of your Waltland tour, with um, a special tour. Did you want to tell our listeners about that one in case they're interested? Yeah, this is the uh, Garner Holt. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yes. You can go on the internet. You know, go to Garner Holt Productions. Go to their internet site. Uh, you can also go to uh, Waltland.com. There's mention there too. Um, Garner Holt once in a while will have a a special private party that's uh, developed for the idea of a very thorough, very long, uh, fairly expensive, but includes lunch and everything where Garner personally shows you through every department and explains every technique for every type of work that's done at Garner Holt. And again, his company almost in companies almost at least 20 of those different uh, crafts and uh, vendor type uh, work that has to be done to create attractions. His company started very, very little. I guess there's, what, the 40th anniversary now. And the fact that today their company is so big and so experienced and got such a staff of people they can actually sit down and design an entire attraction for any theme park anywhere in the world. There is that kind of company. And, of course, to see a company like that and have behind the behind the scenes see, touch, and tell by the leader himself would be like spending five hours with Walt Disney. I mean, this is as close as you're going to get to see what it takes to make attractions that a Disney park would use. Wow. Now I'm really excited (laughs) that I'm going to be there. So, folks, get your tickets. This is a very unique event. So, Bob, again, thank you for being on the show. Thank you for sharing your thoughts and your memories with us. And thank you for sharing your, your, your gifts with us as well. Well, you could call again tomorrow, and we could two <laughs> hours every day for the end of the month, and we wouldn't repeat ourselves. Well, I, you, know. I know. Do you have anything else coming up? Uh, well, yeah, there, there's always some uh, attractions. I got a calendar that's kind of uh, full of a lot of stuff. 
Um, I do like to travel, so I have a motor home. I go traveling once a month someplace. I'll give you a hint. I'm going to Burning Man for the fourth time this year, and I'm going with Monty the Monorail. Are you guys familiar with Monty the Monorail? Monty is a character. He's on YouTube. He, he's an actual character. He's been there for several years. I uh, kid you not. It, it's a 1971 Mark IV monorail from Walt Disney World that got sold on eBay and left in uh, rotting in Georgia for 12 years. And a guy came along and bought him and created a character. So I kid you not. A Monty monorail is a living character who just looks like a monorail. He's on a truck. He went to Burning Man last year. He's a party animal of the first order. People don't believe it when they see it going up the freeway and going up the Burning Man. And I'm part of the 34-man operating team uh, for Monty Monorail having a good time. And it's my old Mark Ford design that I started working on in 1968. And look at us. We're still together out there in the wow. desert at a big art show. That's great. Oh, and you were telling us off air, you have an art project going on with a, a very unique partner. Reminds yes, me of Walt I'll, in a yeah, way. Yeah, there will be more information on BobGer.com uh, very soon and also with 8-Pen uh, uh, Disney Publications. About a year ago, strange things were happening in my garage. Various materials would show up in strange order, in an orderly manner. And I kept wondering, what on the world is going on? They got bigger and better and better. And pretty soon, these things are geometric art uh, collages. I mean, there's I couldn't say anything more than they are geometric art along the lines of uh, abstract um, uh, modern, uh, modern art, modernism. And then I discovered it's a rat. So I learned all about rats and a specific type of rat. This is a uh, generally referred to as the uh, large-eared wood rat, sometimes called pack rats. They like to go steal stuff because they have a characteristic of kleptomania, but they always make a big mess everywhere they go steal stuff and, and pile up and make a big mess. This is so unique. It is absolutely crafted art that has geometric reasons. It follows the uh, rules of uh, proportion and uh, composition. Uh, this week, Tony Anselmo, uh, you know, Donald Duck fame, quite an artist, came up. He is so baffled by what this rat has been doing for most of this year. I have taken copious amount of photographs of his art because almost every night there's brand new art. Uh, he does either uh, manufactured materials or natural materials, and he never intermingles them. It's the darndest thing. Some of them are very big uh, things. As many as 57 parts. Some are only five or six parts. A lot of them are based in quantities of three. You know, three is a natural number in, in the world. This rat will sometimes do three sets of three somethings. And I'm, I'm, just, I'm so puzzled. So what I've been doing, I take some of the art and I uh, do a little artwork on it, you know, with a little uh, photographic frames and things to showcase the beautiful compositions that this guy does. If, if you show modern art that's abstract, that are collages to people, and when they do follow the rules, you can just draw the lines over the top of those rules, the juxtaposition of parts, alignments, angles, tangencies, 
all that stuff, it's all there. And I am trying to figure it out. I have copious amount of Internet information about this rat. Many months ago, he started to show himself because rats, you know, they know uh, they have to stay out of sight. Uh, a couple of months ago, he was out in the backyard. He went going out through my um, geraniums, and he picked out a certain geranium and cut the stem, trimmed the bottom off of it, and went and took it away. Uh, I got a photograph of him. He would come up and sniff my shoe and go back. Now in the garage at night, he runs around behind the shelves making a big noise so that he knows he, he lets me know I, I'm out there. And if I work from, walk from one end of the garage to the other, he runs behind the shelves to keep up with me. And then one night, uh, I will go out there and I give him three little kernels of a peanut. You know, if he's doing a good job, I put it on his artwork. He comes out, he sits on a chair for a moment, he jumps on a workbench and he looks at me or he's quivering and shaking and is totally terrified within two feet of me. Um, I call him Ratty. Uh, very healthy, very good-looking rat, and I know a lot more about rats than I ever knew, but it's a little bit like Walt Disney's 1953 Ben and Me, the Bill Pete story. Mm-hmm. What well, Aloysius is an artist, but the difference is this. Uh, for over 100 years, chimpanzees and elephants can be taught to paint. It's very well-known. People uh, sell this stuff for big bucks. I have the only known proved rodent that actually constructs art. Walt had this wonderful mouse icon that um, the mouse never personally did a thing for Walt. I have a rat that is personally doing work for me, and I'm working with him. And these are going to be available soon. They're, you know, they're a modest price. They'll all be autographed, uh, you know, with Ratty's name on it, my autograph on it. Because as, as a standalone art, and you wouldn't know who did it, it's beautiful-looking uh, modernism. But if they, you learn it's a, by a rat and an untrained natural artist rat, I am just so, I'm so baffled. I can hardly describe this to you. This sounds amazing. I think there's another documentary here in the making well, too. Well, it'll be. Uh, uh, I've got uh, about 24 finished pieces right now, and the first few of these, uh, I'll be printing them soon. They'll be in 11 by 14s in a, in a plastic uh, hard sleeve. And we'll sell them on the bus tour. We're going to sell them, uh, you know, at the barn when I'm when I'm there, and then also Carlene will sell them. And uh, it'll be kind of an interesting thing because people have got Bob Gear books. They've got posters I signed by the dozens, everything I signed. But this will be a new line of art that says, "Yeah, I was a car stylist, then I was a self-taught engineer. Well, why not be an abstract artist and work with a rat?" <laughs> well, it's it's you're right. It's a new career, Bob. <laughs> new chapter in your life. So, and well, thank you again for being a part of our show. Uh, appreciate it. I look forward to seeing you real soon. All right. Well, I hope it triggers more questions from your listeners, so that uh, if you get time to chat again in some future time, uh, you can uh, take some of those questions and put them together, and we'll uh, go right through them for you. Absolutely, we would love that. Thank you. Okay. See y'all. <laughs> Bye-bye. Wow. Well, Craig, that that was what a great conversation with yeah. Bob. No, it, uh, it, it, a lot of stuff here that I haven't personally heard before and uh, I know I know you're the same way. We've we've followed a lot of the interviews Bob has done in the past and mm-hmm. you know, just just tried to research as much as possible and uh, I think it's 
just a, a lot of a lot of great little tidbits we got from this. So I, oh, I yeah. hope everyone enjoys it as much as we enjoyed it. Oh yeah, oh, he is just so fascinating. I mean, great advice. Um, you know, and and you know, he's eighty six years old, and oh my god. Well, first of all, he looks what forty five, maybe fifty. <laughs> he is as sharp as a tack. I wanted to ask him what's. What what is his secret? And I'm sure he gets that question a lot. I mean, you know, is it going to? I thought, okay, he's going to say he drinks a fifth of bourbon and smokes two cigars a day because you know you always hear that yeah. from people. You think they're going to say, oh, I work out for three hours in the gym and I do all this, and um, you know, and then you find out that they do everything the doctors say not to. Yeah, <laughs> but I I know I know he's very active. I remember when he was on the Diz Cruise, he uh, he went biking all over Castaway Key. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that wasn't that long ago, and um, that was only a few years ago, and and I think that I, I remember reading somewhere that they say that one of the ways that you stay sharp and you keep your mind going is to do things that are hard, and it isn't just like so. Um, Sudoku puzzles and things like that, yeah. but really taking on hard, challenging things that make your mind hurt, you know, your brain hurt almost. And that's what keeps you sharp. And um, and, and when you listen to his stories, you realize that's what he's done his whole life. I mean, that curiosity, that how he talked about how he taught himself so much when Walt said, wouldn't it be great to do this? Or what do you think of this? And, and and like Bob said, he had no idea how to do it, but he said yes, and he went out and he learned it. You and know, he's, and it, he's continuing that to this day. And absolutely. That, it's got to be the secret. <laughs> that that has to be. And I thought, okay, I, that's what I need to do. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, because I'm only you know, I'm you know, 25 years younger than he is, and I thought, I don't know, I think he has it over me. <laughs> when I listen to him, no, I'm and, already, I'm already long <laughs> gone with that. I can't remember anything that happened two hours ago. Yeah, yeah. So, um, anyway, just, just terrific. Yeah. And so, and what I like is how he really, um, he brings Walt to life. Yeah, you know, in in a very unique way that uh, uh, you know, just a lot of people can't. So, um, absolutely. Anyway. So and so, if you want to learn more about Bob, as you mentioned, you can go to his website, bobgerd.com. Uh, you can get his DVD at 8pendisneyproducts.com. And if you want to take that tour with him, um, waltland.com. And Craig will have all of this in our show notes. So some of the resources I used in preparation for um, our conversation with Bob, Bob, well, first of all, I had lots of notes because of uh, I've, I've heard him speak so many times. And I even spent, for his 80th birthday, I spent the day at Disneyland with him. Oh, wow. And that 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 was fun, me and a, and a group of friends. Um, but I also, also his book, if you can get a hold of it, uh, Designed Just for Fun by Bob Gurr. Walt Disney's Imagineering Legends and the Genesis of Disney Theme Park by Jeff Curdy. Also, I referred to an e-ticket magazine. Um, I was going to bring it up in the show, and then I didn't. But I think it was, it's a 1997 um, interview with him in e-ticket magazine. And also, there's a great website. Those two books I mentioned on auto design. If you want to read about those books and actually see them online, uh, there's a website called Forgotten Fiberglass. 
that goes into detail about those books as well as uh, another book Bob wrote and about the Utopia cars. So Craig will have that in our show notes as well. Yes. So Craig, until next time, where can our listeners hear and see you? Uh, of course, you can uh, see me and hear me at Tuesdays on the Disney World Edition podcast. Uh, Wednesdays, I don't know. Sometimes, maybe, sure, why not? <laughs> uh, Thursdays on the Universal Edition podcast. Fridays on Dispop. Um, the vlogs throughout the week, this daily fix sometimes here, there, everywhere. You know, I'm, I'm essentially one step away from just taking over every single day, but <laughs> eventually I'll get tired. <laughs> and of course, by now, there will probably be lots of videos up about the D23 Expo. I'm, where you if can there's see. not, I'm not doing my job. <laughs> <laughs> where, where you can see many of um, your favorite folks from the uh, some of your favorite folks from the uh, Diz Unplugged yep. um, all the different shows and you can find me every Sunday night on the Diz Unplugged podcast at Disneyland edition with my good friends Tom Bell, Nancy Johnson, Mary Jo Mulata Willie and Tony Spatel where we have lots of fun talking about Walt's Park and Bob Kerr's Park that started it all and a Southern California theme other Southern California theme parks I talk about the Walt Disney Family Museum, and even more Disney history. So you can listen to us live on Mixler, Sundays at 7 p.m. Pacific Time, Disneyland Time. And you can download our two weekly shows from iTunes each Monday. If you would like to listen to more shows about the history of Walt Disney, his studio, his Imagineers, and Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney history episodes at www.disunplugged.com. You can send me messages at michael at wdwinfo.com and Actually, we've been getting getting a lot of really nice messages from listeners lately, and it's been very um, very nice. Thank you for that. I really appreciate it. And I, I, Craig, if they don't copy you on them, I always send them over to yes, you. Yes, I, I see everything. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, on Twitter, I'm at mbowling121. Facebook, Michael Bowling, and Instagram, Michael Bowling the Diz. So please join us next time for episode 35 when um, we make the Magic Kingdom's Liberty Square great again by studying the history of that land. So thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing, that it was all started by a man, Walt Disney, and his brother Roy. <laughs>